the composing, centering, listening, receptive, awakened uh, state of being before you become anybody or anything at all, you know, so this recognizing this. So like when I talk about pure subjectivity, it's interesting that subjectivity because when we when we talk about Dhamma and meditation experience and mysticism and whatnot, we, where the subject and object merge and oneness and <laughs> completeness and wholeness, these kind of words, you know, when we grasp the, the words themselves, then we're looking for something, you know, like where there is no subject. Subject, object are one. And, and then we, we try to find that or experience that. So this is uh, where you, you need to trust the direct experience more than your theoretical interpretations or views about oneness and no self. And that's where this uh, reflecting on being uh, a conscious human form in the present. And so using these words like consciousness isn't fraught with a lot of personal uh, attachments. You know, our memories in can trigger off emotions and feelings of love and hate and whatnot, but consciousness, no. And then uh, being aware of the, the human state, you know, when we use the word human, then we're not identifying, we're not trying to convince ourselves or define humanity, but just recognize as, you know, what we call the human state, the body this body that we're experiencing right now, with its senses, eyes, ears, nose, tongue, body itself, the thinking mind, human beings are thinking beings. The word man itself, M-A-N, is, is no doubt origin from mano or mental, probably traced back to Sanskritic origin. Doesn't mean male. So man, mano, mano is the same in Pali, isn't it? Conveys, you know, mentality, thinking, remembering. So being human and conscious, here and now, the pachubhanatamma. I haven't hit anything personal yet, you know, or sparked off any emotional, uh, unless you want to argue about <laughs> about it. But the point is not arguing, more <laughs> kind of trying to help uh, set the stage, you know, what what's going on right now? What are this, before it becomes fraught with personal preferences, views, opinions, assumptions, like being human is, we all are human, so there's no, there's no problem there. Human, conscious, here and now get into male and female, then we get into the strong feelings about various gender problems and of views and opinions. But let's stick to the to the uh 
do they? Just that that which every one of us have in common, which is not divisive, which is unitive, on even on the condition plane. So the human sensitivity, conscious, here and now. And in subjectivity, you know, what we usually regard as a subject is the ego. So I, you know, when I put my ego, when I operate from ego, from the sakayaditi, now I'm talking about me and my life and my feelings and my views and opinions and my achievements, my failures, and so forth. And that, that's the subjective uh, ego. So I'm putting the, the ego in the place of the subject and operating from the ego. What I think, my view, my opinion, my feelings, my abilities, lack of abilities, successes, failures, my body, my position, me, me and mine. And so that's, you know, the condition, the sankhara is, is around me and mine, you know, what I feel, what I think, <coughs> my view, my opinion, my fears and desires, my problems, my practice. <laughs> but if we let go of that, uh, the sakyaditi, then there's still the sense of subjectivity, but the, but it's not translated into personal. It's not perceiving it through the through personal habits, but it's very it's very clear, very direct. It's mindfulness, sati sampachanya, sati panya. So that's why I, I encourage you to really explore this. So, so you become more confident in being the awareness rather than somebody practicing, somebody trying to <coughs> attain, somebody who's who feels they haven't attained what they should have or views about practice and about the world in general or whatever. But to not to deny that or is not trying to get rid of it, but put it in a, in in its proper place. So you you have you can change from the personal to the impersonal, from the atta, the self, about me and how I feel, to pure subjectivity. It's just a a a, a mode of perception, a, a shift from this personal sense of self and identity with conditions, with the body, with emotions, with memories, to the impersonal, anatta. And it's, it's consciousness, <coughs> fully conscious. But the difference is that in consciousness without attachment is like this. It's impersonal. Consciousness with attachment to conditioned phenomena becomes highly personal. So you can, you can kind of explore that. You know, consciousness and attachment out of ignorance, then it becomes fraught with my view, my feelings, me and mine. Consciousness not attached is intelligence, is wisdom, 
discernment, knowing, anatta, this is anatta, and it's so the discerning, isn't it? You can discern the difference. At least I can. <laughs> Exploring this, you know, there's no when when they're caught up in me and mine and my feelings and views and opinions and the and the sakaditi, the ego, the emotions. And there's knowing when there when there's no when there's non attachment. When there's pure subjectivity, pure consciousness. And experiencing from this point here, this you know, this point that of consciousness that form the human body, but rather than translating the experience through personal preferences, prejudices, biases, conditions, it's letting go of that, detaching, letting go to discerning. Now, when when I when the when I let go of the ego, then all the kind of strident uh, fears and emotional fraught emotions and regrets and problems of the world, they dissolve, they go away. Because the impersonal is self-sustaining. You don't, it's not made, it's not an ego trip. You don't create it, just recognizing it. So you rest in it, abiding. So this is what we mean by discerning. Discernment It's an interesting word because, you know, a thinking mind's a critical function. It, you know, it's function. It's supposed to be critical. It's not. I'm not saying anything wrong with criticism. <laughs> I'm not criticizing criticism, but to recognize that that the thinking mind is is a critical function. You know, we wonder why uh, those of us who have developed critical faculties why we suffer so much. You think, you know, you think, you know, if, if I were illiterate, kind of peasant, uh, working in a rice paddy and uh, hadn't developed a lot of, you know, hadn't been educated if I was illiterate, and uh, I still have critical function, but maybe I'd have more faith in things like Buddhism or the teacher, or I'd, I'd tend to maybe not have developed the critical mind, you know, the thinking mind to the level that that you do when you go through the educational system. So, and then, you know, so we, even in comfortable middle-class existence in affluent Western Europe, you know, we suffer a lot because of, of our critical faculties. We can get, I can get myself very angry and indignant over what the government's doing. I can get very enraged over things that, you know, unfairnesses, injustices, or I can get my feelings hurt. If, if somebody starts insulting me or disparaging me, I can get very hurt, very offended, very angry. I get, you know, this, I'm full of shoulds and shouldn'ts. And so this, um, this is a critical mind, this identity with with ideals, with how things should be, how things shouldn't be, with uh, the sense of myself on the ego level, binding myself to memories, 
perceptions, emotional habits, ideals. So then the discerning, the suffering, the dukkha, the, the first noble truth, there is this unsatisfactoriness or this dukkha. Uh, dukkha should be understood. There's a understanding dukkha is recognizing it. This, this is dukkha. To be a separate self, to be Ajahn Sameto, without discerning anything outside that, just to be me uh, as a personality, is unsatisfied, is unsatisfactory. And it's not a criticism of, of, the, of me as a person, it's just recognizing. There's a sense of self-identity with memory, with, with the, e with the Sakya Ditti, Siddhabhata which he Kicha, with being attached to thinking, always wanting to figure things out, analyze and criticize and <coughs> explain and compare and hold on to ideals and then criticize everything because it's, things are never what they should be. And so this, this uh, sense of being this person even when this person is in a very good mental frame, you know, it's, it's still unsatisfactory to be a person. And, and I don't expect you to believe this. This is a reflection. As I often wondered why I was so, I suffered so much when I didn't have any real reason to suffer. You know, I wasn't being persecuted or starving or deprived or abused and things in any, uh, you know, unusual way in my life as a lay person. Wasn't that I had a tragic childhood or, <coughs> you know, had been treated badly in life. But it was just some, this, this feeling of missing something, missing, not good enough, incompleteness, and taking it very personally like this, what's wrong with me? Well, I should be I should be happy, I, you know, I should be uh, according to the ideal. And then, of course, the critical mind will dwell on what's wrong, you know, the, it seems to hold on to the flaws. So any, any, you know, false weaknesses I see in myself, I really, you know, get obsessed with it, hate myself for having, for having weaknesses and faults, not living up to the ideals that I hold, not being able to, for pusillanimity, pusillanimity. <laughs> Trying to get your mind around that word. So then, you know, I remember before becoming a monk, feeling this despair because, because, you know, what's wrong with me? you know, taken very personally, you know, because people don't really talk about it that much. And, and, and everybody, and I was in the Peace Corps in Malaysia, and everybody seemed to be having a great time except me. And, um, and I was having a good time, actually. <laughs> but even where having a good time was unsatisfying. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, what you know, taking it personally. You take it, there's something wrong with me. I need to maybe go through psychoanalysis, or do something about it. Then, of course, the 
this uh, confident faith in Buddha Dhamma was what I followed. Now there, it's like having this this uh, tool of Four Noble Truths, this, this convention. They began to, you know, understand, understand Dukkha, First Noble Truth. So my standard of living went down, plummeted downward from being uh, middle class, affluent to being a samana in Northeast Thailand. <laughs> you know, didn't have, didn't have the freedom, couldn't just do what I wanted, had to live, sleep on a grass mat. You know, we brought up on inner spring mattresses in the United States. My parents were obsessed about mattresses. <laughs> so we always had the very best mattresses to sleep on. Remember, my mother kind of inner spring mattresses was the w word I remember. The latest thing in back in the, you know, in childhood, really wonderful mattresses, springs and, and things so that you lie on these wonderful beds. That's what I was used to then, sleeping on a grass mat. And then I was very skinny, so I said, just sleeping on your bones on a mat. You know, the first few nights was hardly sleep at all, just so un uncomfortable. But is that dukkha? Because <coughs> I can, I could still be totally miserable on an inner spring mattress. <laughs> but within the the structure of Buddhist monasticism, then, then the emphasis was on awareness rather than on seeking happiness and and trying to find out what's wrong with yourself. So this is, uh, you know, in the style of Lung Po Cha, it was observing the way things really are, you know, awakening, noticing, reflecting upon. Dukkha, understanding Dukkha, understanding suffering. It's sleeping on a grass mat. is physically, say, I got used to it. It could sleep perfectly well lying on a grass mat. But then at first, you know, the first night, I thought, oh, this is real suffering. Grass mats are the cause of my suffering. But then I began to expand from blaming grass mats and Buddhist monasticism for my suffering to reflecting on understanding suffering. You know, there's physical, maybe physically not as comfortable, but the suffering is, it's, you know, began to s discern the difference between physical discomfort and and how my emotional reaction to it aversion wanting to be comfortable wanting my inner spring mattress and and wa and uh, not wanting the physical sensations I was experiencing on the grass mat now this is this is in, in understanding suffering what is what is you know we're not talking about physical pain or discomfort, but the what we create around it. So reflecting on the human state, this human state is basically about pain and pleasure, isn't it? Having a human body. That's it, it, you know, this is a sensitive realm. It's not about finding eternal happiness and eternal comfort and eternal, 
you know, Sukhavedana as a as a permanent state of living. Those are ideals, maybe. That's what heaven is, isn't it? When I think of heaven, going to heaven, there's no pain, no ugliness. It's all beautiful, all pleasant. There's no dukkha in heaven. Everything is an inner spring mattress with <laughs> with ice cream mountains. Everything is sweet and beautiful and just what I want at every moment. Just what I desire. All my desires fulfilled instantly. I mean, this is taking, uh, this is my personal, you know, like a child's view of heaven, isn't it? Where you, you know, everything you want, everything that's pleasant, everything you like, is you get instantly. But this realm... <coughs> A human body is not a devada body. It's it's like this. It's, it's a coarse form compared to deva. Devas, devadas, or angels have ethereal bodies. It's finer, isn't that ether? Is uh, isn't coarse. At least in, in the w my perspective, ethereal bodies like devadas, they they float and they they're beautiful. They aren't heavy, clunky, old, 72-and-a-half-year-old arthritic forms like this one. <laughs> Imagine a David having arthritis. But this is uh, the way it is, isn't it? This is, uh, this is the human condition is like this. Human bodies are like this. And so it's not, that it's not the cause of dukkha, the human body is. It's not the cause. So that's why this awakenness is, uh, even within the, the, the discomfort, restriction, stiffness, unpleasantness of, of uh, physical bodies, there's still discerning, there's still awakenness, consciousness. And within, the, you know, even when it's sick or old or <coughs> painful, now these are bearable conditions, but what we can't stand is our own, you know, resentment, not wanting it, uh, just reacting, blindly reacting to discomfort, pain, restriction, old age, and all the rest, wanting it to be otherwise. So, so then the second noble truth is wanting something we don't have, not wanting what we have to be the way it is. Wanting, wanting. And this is a critical mind, isn't it? You can always imagine, a, you know, remember when I was yo young and energetic and, and so forth. <laughs> or I can create an ideal of an ideal human body which is full of vigor and good health and radiant, shining complexion and and uh, can do fantastic things, you know, leap and jump and swing from the trees and dance and sing. And and then the, this 72-and-a-half-year-old uh, body can't do that. <laughs> so, I mean, it's, uh, you know, this reflection, it was all right, then we don't, not expecting or, or wanting it to be otherwise. It's like this.
Because what what is liberating is uh, is through awareness, not through having the perfect human body. Is not may not be liberating at all. One gets very attached to good health and vigor and all the rest, and then suffers enormously when when you don't have it. So recognizing it through these four noble truths, that, that you know, just observing, wanting in meditation, wanting. Something you don't have. Not wanting the mental state or physical realities of this present moment. Not wanting them to be the way they are. Now this is discerning, you know, so you can actually observe this bhavadana vipavadana. And that which is observant, is observing, is not is not Sakya Diti, is not Siddhavatabharamatha, is not Vichikita. But it isn't stupid or blank, isn't it? It's inte- there's intelligence, being alert, attentive, mindful. So in Buddhist terms, we call that Sati Sampachanya and Sati Panya, which is impersonal. It's not, you can you know, to to claim it personally is is a, it's called vipalasa, a Bali word for you know, seeing things in the wrong way. <laughs> so then is gamadana, sensual desire, bhavadana, becoming desire for getting something you don't have, that you say mental states, ambition, wanting attainments, achievements. Wanting to become something. Now, to ask yourself, you know, uh, what do you think of yourself uh, on a personal level? Do you, you know, when I think of myself, if I follow my my sakyaditi, it seems to be just kind of repetitious. It's a habitual tendency to to, to be critical. And a kind of, um, you know, saying things like, full of doubts and uncertainties, trying to be politically correct or polite and be nice and socially acceptable and humble, and not uh, you don't want to you know I don't want to be a a braggart or overestimate myself. There is ambition, you know, there is a desire to attain and achieve something from monastic life. The sense of myself, you know, committing myself to monasticism, Buddhist monasticism all these years. On the on the ego level. You know, I've been pretty, you know, treated extremely well in this Theravadan system. You know, by the tradition. So, I mean, I, I have, you know, I can't complain about it. I've been treated extremely well as a person, as a monk, as an individual. But still, even with with all of that, it's still unsatisfactory, isn't it? Even being a, quote, successful, unquote, monk, Buddhist monk, (laughs) in the Theravadan tradition, still, it's something that, you know, isn't, isn't liberating to attach to to sense of 
I am an important monk, I'm a senior monk, I'm this and that, and I've done this. You know, some monks have these name cards and they list all their qualifications. Some monks, you know, give me their, their name cards and lists of, you know, president of this, chairman, and this degree from this university. <laughs> I met a Buddhist monk in Korea, South Korea, years ago, who had collected honorary PhDs. He had about 20 of them. And during that meeting, it was a World F Fellowship of Buddhist Conference in Seoul. And, and then he got another PhD from Almaty or someplace in Uzbekistan or some Kazakhstan. <laughs> I remember his 21st or something. I mean, an enormous amount of PhDs. How many PhDs does it take? to feel liberated. <laughs> so, I mean, it's... Uh, but then, you know, the point is not to, not to uh, support the ego and uh, build it up, but to see through it. You know, so this is, this is the whole aim of our life, thus is to awaken. So that that wakeness then is is uh, you know say on this retreat this sense of attentiveness, listening, discerning, observing you know the the way your thinking mind works your t personal tendencies without criticizing them. As soon as you start criticizing yourself, you're back into the trap again about what should and shouldn't be and what's good and bad. So oftentimes, you know, go through through psychotherapies where you kind of, t you know, get totally involved with your personality of why you you react like this and why you're frightened of that and why you you uh, get angry so easily or so on and on. And it, it can be interesting because on a personal level we, we become interested in in ourselves, the reasons why. Why do I? Why do I react like this under the certain conditions, and why do I react like that under other conditions? Why do I have these tendencies? What What is it in my past that that I experienced that inclined me toward this rather than that? And and so, I mean, I'm not against this. I'm not criticizing this, but notice that it's still always. Uh, from the conditioning of the mind, the sense of a self, wanting to know why I feel this anger or greed or doubt or despair. Why do I feel depressed? Why do I get threatened by certain situations? And on and on like this, and it's interesting. And, uh, you know, so... Um, I'm not criticizing this. I'm pointing out that it's still operating on that level of of uh, I am I shouldn't be like this. This is not a good quality. This is uh, I shouldn't be frightened. You know, I've got to trying to to you know deal with my fears and my obsessions and my desires. But notice that it's still about me and mine and. And it, and it is interesting, it's interesting, what, you know, to find out about my ancestry, 
and why I, you know, look back at my past experience and my relationship to my mother and father and society and on like this. It's not that I don't find that interesting, but even then it's not liberating. We're pointing to liberation from the self rather than just trying to understand the self through an analyzing it or through blaming because we can say it's my mother's fault or my father's fault. It's, uh, you know, I should have, they should have been more loving or there should have been more of this, that's of that. They were too strict or too l lax or the teachers I had, uh, the abuse that I received, the bullying that happened to me when I was a boy, the, the uh, unfairness of life. And and then I can, you know, you can make a justified story. That's interesting. That's what novels are about oftentimes. <laughs> because I was, you know, all this thing about sexual abuse of children now, and then using that, saying this, you know, it ruined my life because I was sexually abused by my father when I was uh, three years old. And then that, that still, sakyaditi, isn't it? If you don't put it in the context, I wasn't, by the way, <laughs> just a statement. But I mean, we we can use the 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 uh, the injustices or or things done to us, harmful things done to us, as justification. The you know the victim mentality. It, they ruin it. Ruined my life forever. So. I can't help my miserable life is due to this incident when I was three years old. And it might be true. You know, I'm not saying denying it. But then in the awakened consciousness, awakened consciousness, then it's a transcending of that condition itself. It's not a denial. It's putting it into perspective being the awareness rather than being the, the, the person who is abused. So it's a, this, this shift from being the, the person with the problem to being aware of this, of the personality. So that's where pure subjectivity, sati sampachanya, it, and then the, then the, then the personality, Sakya Ditti Tilabhata Brahmasa, can be observed. And it is what it is. It's not a denial, not a judgment, not a criticism, but it's discerning the conditions are impermanent, not self. From this perspective of a pure awareness, pure subjectivity, then the sense of self, this feeling of having been misunderstood and abused, one can uh, witness that. But you can't sustain it if you really accept the feeling, you know, like the that lingering sense of this should never have happened and it's unfair. If you stay with that feeling, not cling to it, but, you know, what we call embrace or accept it, without creating anything, any problems around it, 
it fades away, dissolves in consciousness. And so you s begin to recognize the cessation, insight into Neroda, the, the self ceases, the sense of a self ceases. And when there's cessation, then there is, is still consciousness. It's not, you go unconscious and disappear, drop dead or anything. It's just a particular condition that that sense that sense of me and mine and not not just the thought but the the feeling the emotion the emotion that is aroused the feeling of being treated badly or victimized of uh, anger or resentment or fears you know as you observe as you the witness you seeing them in terms of their conditions, they arise, that what arises ceases. So you, you allow something to cease, you're not trying to get rid of it. So you're not denying it or resisting or rejecting, but allowing emotional experience to be what it is. You see, so it's discerning it. It's discerning, but it's not criticizing it. It's not attaching to it, but certainly feeling it. You can certainly feel this way, but this awareness, you know, embraces feeling. You know, it, it allows feeling to operate. That's why we we call it transcendent. Because feeling is another condition, isn't it? Vedana, sanya, sankara. So these terms, you know, like uh, talking about nibbana, nibbana, and samsara, uh, puto versus sakyaditi, the Buddha knowing the Dhamma or the 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 self or the ego um, interpreting life and experience from the ego. Like when we, that's what, this refuge in Bhutang Tamang Sankang Lamasami, the Sarana, a Buddha Dhamma Sangha. These, these are, these are words too, but there, there's, there's Upayas. Upayas to point to the reality of Bhutto Tamola. Buddha is aware of Sakyaditi. Sakyaditi can attach to views about Buddha. You know, as an ego, I can form all kinds of views and opinions about Buddha and what is Buddha and what is not Buddha and Buddha says and what Buddha didn't say and what Buddha taught and what Buddha didn't teach and pure Buddhism and real Buddhism and Orthodox Buddhism, Theravada Buddhism, Mahayana Buddhism. I can have personally have strong views and preferences. I can still have preferences on a Sakyaditi level, still feel preferences. But the the point of the Buddhist teaching is is not becoming a Buddhist, but being being awake, aware. And so we call that refuge, Bhutang Saranangachami. 
Puto, the Thai pronunciation of the of the mantra, Puto. The knowing. So it's a it's 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 using this word Puto and then it is this this awareness of Dhamma. So you're seeing the conditions and as Dhamma rather than as personal uh, preferences or views and opinions or inclinations or tendencies or from the critical mind about right and wrong, good and bad. Puto is discerning, you know, discern those conditions as conditions. It's not judging conditions as inferior. Conditioned phenomena is inferior to the unconditioned. Now what does that mean? You know, so we can take the words unconditioned and conditioned. Nibbana is better than samsara, <laughs> isn't it? Samsara is about suffering. Nibbana is about non-suffering. So Nibbana is much better. I'm for Nibbana and I'm against samsara. See how the logic functions. We've got to destroy samsara. Get rid of samsara so there's just nibbana, no more samsara at all. What am I doing? This is this sakyaditi again, isn't it? Because, you know, nibbana is better than samsara in terms of value judgments. Not denying that, it's saying they're the same or but it's discerning, you know, the the mode of perception changes. From the from the self view, the ignorant self view, to the r reality, to Puddha knowing Dhamma, to pure consciousness, pure subjectivity, pure intelligence. It's not it's not tainted with cultural prejudices or biases. So samsara, you know, when we t when we observe the the self. The Sakya Ditti. That's why, you know, it's, it's, it's being the, the Bhutto, knowing the Dhamma, rather than the judge and the critic of yourself. Now, this is very important because we're so conditioned to be critical, and we there's so many things we may not like about ourselves. Thoughts we have, or tendencies, and so forth. It's so easy to be critical of oneself. You know, so then you... And the critical is, you know, it has its value, but, you know, we see things, you know, tendencies that are not very good, habits that are not very skillful, uh, tendencies that uh, lead always lead m me to suffering and unhappiness, uh, emotional habits that that are, you know, not very mature or skillful reactions, emotional reactions to situations that, you know, should be, you know, wish were otherwise. So on that Sakyaditi level, you know, emotional and that, then, you know, it, we can't help but be critical of, uh, of a, you know, the inferiority or the childishness of some of our emotional reactions, the vanity, the arrogance, the conceit, 
are some of our positions we take on life. But then, in, in but then, so th trying to sort that out endlessly, you know, it's just, you know, just uh, comparing it to trying to sweep the streets of London with a toothbrush. You do, you know, you get patches clean, but then you know it's an endless task, and then. Even though you get a you know little patches clean, they get dirty again very quickly. <laughs> so I mean, it's just an impossible task to try to sort it out on the, you know, just to make everything right and get have mature emotions and and um, positive views of life and all the best that you can imagine. Make yourself into the ideal personality. You'll never be able to succeed. <coughs> so, so rather than trying to become the perfect person, you know, the Buddha, uh, it's a shortcut, actually. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, suddenly you're shifting, changing perspective, rather than working always from the conditioned plane to being this awareness. This is your true nature. You know, so you're you're not uh, you're not assuming something or or you know getting you know avoiding anything. You should have you know, but you're recognizing, awakening, in which then the the conditions that you have to live with, your personality, your emotional habits, your physical state, can be. You learn from it. You know you're. You you can study it in terms of Dhamma. Buddha knows the Dhamma, sees the Dhamma. So even your even childish emotions are are Dhamma. They arise and cease. They're not permanent. They're not self. But they are. When the conditions arise, then this emotion is what what manifests. And so the Buddha knows the conditions as conditions. Now that's discernment. That's Buddha knowing Dhamma. Or it can be me seeing my faults and my weaknesses. There I go again. There I, you know, I shouldn't have said that. And I, I said something that I shouldn't have said the other day, and I know I'm going to pay the price. And uh, you know, there's certain situations I can't stand in life, and I can't bear them. And <coughs> I want this, and I don't want that. Or you know, I'm trying to you know, thinking you know, be you know, feeling that sense of despair when you. When you just react again, uh, you know, you get angry over something relatively minor, you know, or you overreact or you suppress your feelings. And and then we, we tend to say, there I go again. Oh, you know, I've got all these problems. Oh, dear. Or t switching on the puto, knowing that these are whatever you're thinking, feeling, whatever this condition might be. Whatever emotional reaction you have to it, 
there's always in the present, the here and now, the ability to see it as Dhamma. And that's the accept it for what it is. Doesn't mean you approve. You never approve or like a lot of the conditions, but you can certainly accept them. That they are what they are. You see old conditions, the face and Karanita, old conditions are impermanent. So kind of letting go and embracing really amount to the same thing. You talk about embracing, it sounds like you're holding on to them. And then you're letting go means like you're pushing them away. Let go, just get out of my way kind of feeling. And this, <laughs> this is where we've got to, you know, not take too literally the words. But, you know, if one tendency is to always resist and push away and deny and get rid of, then uh, embrace, I found embrace helpful. Because I, I'm a resistor, you know, I'm a, I, I tend to, to resist things and, re and uh, push away. So embracing, I found, you know, just that concept of embracing suffering helpful because that embracing is this sense of allowing something to be. You know, when you embrace somebody, you're, you're not just, you know, holding the, the bits that you like, you're, you're accepting the whole person in that. You know, so you're, you're <laughs> this embracing has a sense of uh, accepting totally something in, in its good and bad and pleasant, painful, beautiful, ugly, whatever. Allowing it to be what it is. Letting go also, it means leave it alone, let it be what it is. Don't feel you have to do anything about it, it just... If it, you know, if it's childish and stupid, let it allow it to be that way. Childish and stupid are conditions, not self. So these kind of imperatives, tyrannical imperatives of you should be mature, wise monk. You know, seventy-two and a half year old forty vasa bhikkhu. The imperative is you should be wise and understanding and benevolent like Santa Claus and St. Nicholas. But when the karma ripens, and this is what arises, you know, so it's not a matter of, of trying to make yourself act the role of a, of a wise old Buddhist monk. But that's not necessary because, you know, the, the, the way is of awareness awakenness, non-personal, anatta, nibbana, non-attachment, consciousness without attachment, knows attachment. Recognizes and sees the dukkha, the first noble truth of attachment, of clinging, of identity.